Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? Oh, good. Come on. How are y'all doing? Good. Everybody have a good fourth? Good. I'm glad you guys stayed safe. Um, it was nice to have an extra day that Monday tacked on um, for most of us. Uh, at least, no, for me it was. Um, but speaking of last Sunday, right, it was kind of a big deal for our church. Why was it a big deal for our church? Anybody? Why was it a big deal? We reached our goal. And so last week, we kind of summed up the end of our emphasis month, um, and we celebrated the fact that we as a church didn't just meet our goal of $200,000 towards the land, but we went over. Um, and we reached $220,000 for us to begin purchasing our own land for our own church. Isn't that amazing? Oh, come on. It's amazing. That's awesome. Um, I just love that. We still talked about this last week, um, but we talked about the fact that it's not so much of a celebration of what we gave, but so much a celebration of God's faithfulness, right? God's faithfulness and provision for a church who open-handedly comes to him generous, ready to build his kingdom. Um, but it's a huge step for us as a church, and it's super, super exciting. And so if you're also here last Sunday, you'll remember we started a new series. We started a series called One Hit Wonders, um, where we're talking about books of the Bible that only have one chapter in them. Um, and so I thought... Doug, when he created that name, super cool, super clever. Um, but we talked about how even though these books of the Bible only have one chapter, um, they pack a big punch, um, and that we shouldn't count them out, that they're just as important as the rest of Scripture. Um, but last week, Doug talked about the book of Obadiah, right? And he talked about the history leading up to the book, and he talked about Jacob, and he talked about Esau, and we eventually got to the nation of Edom. And so Doug talked about um, Obadiah's warning for Edom, how it stands as a warning for us today, um, but that today uh, we have an out, and that we have a place for redemption, and that's Jesus. And so today, I want to talk about the book. We're going to go through the book of Jude. Um, and so that's our next one-hit wonder. And the book of Jude gets its title from uh, its author, um, and the author of Jude is Jude. <laughs> and so his brother, he says in the first verse, is he's the half-brother of James. And so what this means is he's also the half-brother of Jesus. And so if you go back to the book of Matthew, though, it lists the brothers of Jesus as James and Judas. Um, and so scholars, uh, biblical scholars, believe that as time passed um, and Jude began to preach around the uh, nation, he would change his name from Judas to Jude so that he wouldn't be mistaken, right, or even conceived close to being uh, Judas of Iscariot, right, which is Judas who betrayed Jesus in the garden. Um, and so Judas, now Jude, wrote this epistle. Um, and we don't really know who he was writing it to, um, but we do know why he was writing it. And so he says this, um, he was writing it to encourage us to contend for the faith. And so this is what he says in verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you, I'll wait for it, sorry, there you go. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you um, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago um, were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Um, and so Jude is telling us to contend for the faith, right? But what does it really mean to contend? Um, we don't really use that word often, uh, but when I do think about how we use it, we use it a lot in terms of like wrestling or in terms of USC, and we call the fighters contenders. 
Uh, but that's because the word contend, it means to fight or to strive against difficulty. Um, and this is what Jude is trying to get us to do, right? Jude wants us to fight through all the difficulties of our faith, to stand up strong in our faith, right? But in this book, Jude focuses on one thing in particular that he wants us to strive and stand up against. And um, that one thing he focuses on is false teachers. And so he says um, that false teachers are ungodly people that seek to perverse or distort the grace of God into sensuality. And so false teachers seek to change the grace of God by making it something that is determined by our feelings and by our thoughts and not by what God says. And so we have to be careful of this because false teachers, because they play to our emotions and our thoughts and our opinions, they can be so easy to follow. It can be easy to, the, um, to, be, it can be easy to criticize people. Um, it can, because it's so easy to follow them, it can be easy to then criticize people and teachers who don't play to our emotions because we feel convicted or we feel uncomfortable. And so I love this, right? I love this because Jude goes on to explain to us using three key emotions that false teachers play to. Um, and we're going to break those down. And so the first one is going to be doubt. And we see that in verse 5. In verse 5, Jude says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, um, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Right? And so he's talking about doubt. And so if we're honest, doubt is something that we all struggle with. Um, we all, in moments in our life, doubt seems to creep in. You know, trials in our life where we just can't see the way forward and we can't comprehend a way that God could possibly make a way through it. Um, and this is why Jude uses the example of Israel, right, wandering in the wilderness. Israel stood on the shore of the Red Sea, right, and literally watched God part the Red Sea. And they didn't just cross the Red Sea, but they crossed on dry ground, right, as the walls of the Red Sea stood up next to them. But as soon as they began to walk in the wilderness and the first sign of trouble showed up, there were people among them that said, surely God didn't lead us out into the wilderness to die. Maybe we should just go back to Egypt. Right? They saw things that I, I mean, I can't even imagine. It'd be like standing at Lake Mills and suddenly the water just parts and you're able to walk across. That'd be crazy. And they stood there and saw that. But yet when trials came, there were some that had doubt. And we always talk about how crazy it is, right, that Israel could experience something like that um, but act this way. But if we're honest, a lot of us do the same thing. We've seen God work in our lives. We've seen God doing miraculous things, really cool things, bring us through seasons that we never thought we were going to get through. And then when we face the next season, we begin to struggle and feel like God, and start wondering if God is ever going to lead us through our current circumstance. And so the false teachers within Israel's camp wanted to lead them back to a place where they were comfortable, despite God's promises that he would see them through. And this is how false teachers will use our doubts today. In times when we're struggling, they'll try to lead us back to a place where we feel comfortable in our faith, where God wants to take us deeper. You see, false teachers will try to get you to settle when God is trying to move you forward. Um, and they do that. And so how do we avoid that? How do we push further? Right? Well, when we have doubt, what we should do is we should lean closer to God's word and lean closer to God through prayer. That's how we can help with our doubt. The next emotion that they use is pride. It says this in verse 6. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
And so this is the second emotion that Jude mentions. Jude uses the example of the falling angels, right? Um, because they didn't remain within their own power of authority that God gave them. The angels, see, they weren't content with what God gave them, and they believed that they were capable of more. Um, and this is relevant to us because false teachers will make you feel like God is holding out on you. Um, a false teacher will try to convince you that there is more f- for you than what you have right now. They'll make you feel like God is not fulfilling his promises to you. And they'll turn around and offer you something to fill that void. And we see this play out all through scripture, right? I think about Eve, Eve in the garden, right? What happened? Satan convinced her that she was missing out. Satan convinced her that um, God was withholding knowledge from her. And then what did he do? He turned around and gave her a solution to try and fill that void. A way to try and gain that knowledge. The same thing happened with Jesus in the desert. Satan showed Jesus a vision of the world and said, I will give all of this to you if you just bow down to me. What I love is Satan literally tried to pull one over on God himself. He tried to offer Jesus things that he would one day go on to have and get the keys to when he conquered the grave. And he does the same thing with us. Listen, if you're a follower of God, he's made you promises. And God exalts those who are humble. And the false teacher will try and tell you and make you feel that God is either not going to um, use you, not going to exalt you in his time, or that he's not doing it quick enough. Even trying to convince us that we're not going to get enough credit is the way that he does it. And so where, when you're in a time in your life when you're struggling and maybe you can see where God's trying to lead you, right? Maybe you can see what he wants to take you to, but you feel like he's not doing it quick enough. A false teacher will use that against you. And they'll point that out to you. I love that. Just like Jesus, there are things that God wants to lead us to, but he says, hey, you're not ready for. But in time, I will make you ready for them. Um, The next emotion he uses in verse 7, and this is the emotion of pleasure. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You see, a false teacher will also play to your fleshly pleasures. A false teacher will lift high our temptations and our flesh-driven pleasures. False teachers will minimize our sin and the consequences that come with them. It's important that we know that there is grace when we do sin, um, but false teachers will convince us that we shouldn't feel conviction because of God's grace. Does that make sense? They'll say, because God's grace is so abounding, you shouldn't feel conviction. You shouldn't feel that. Um, God is just love, right? Sometimes it's things they'll say. They'll say that it's okay to continually stumble, continually stumble without regard for changing or without repenting. And Jude mentions that the following, um, that following these teachers and what they say will lead us to the same kind of fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, he gives, he gives that at the end of every example. He gives an example of uh, leading to destruction, how God uh, gleaned Israel and took out the people who brought in doubt. How the angels who tried to rise above their authority fell from heaven and will sit with chains for all of eternity. The false teacher will try to convince you to live by emotion instead of obedience. And so Jude goes on after that, right? So he's kind of laid out these things, these techniques that false teachers will use to kind of convince you, right? He uses doubt. He uses pride. He said they use pleasure. Um, And now he just goes on to kind of describe false teachers um, and what they're like. And so to set up this point, Judas told us, right, the faith, uh, 
faith to contend through through faith through all difficulties, um, especially through false teachers. But in verses eight through thirteen, Jude takes us to describe false teachers and the characteristics of their life. And so this is what he says in verses eight through thirteen. He says, "Yet in like manner, these people also, being false teachers, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh." They reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And so he kind of, he kind of gives a lot there. And so we're just going to go back and break it down. But I want you to see it all in one context. Um, but the first thing he says is false teachers follow their own dreams and pleasures. And so he says that in verse 8. You see, he says, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. See, false teachers want to do nothing um, besides follow their own desires. Uh, they won't submit to the vision of others or the direction of God if it doesn't lead them to where they want to be. Um, and it's not like, don't hear me wrong, I think um, it's not wrong for us to dream. It's not wrong for us to have desires for our lives, but our dreams and desires must be rooted and submitted to Christ in the pursuit of God. And a way to test if your dreams and your desires um, and to see if they are in the will of God is to look for two things. Um, is to look for two things. And that, that first thing, I think, is we need to test our dreams and desires and see if they first honor God. If your dream... Is something that brings God glory. Um, and if that's the motivation behind your dream. Secondly, I think we need to see um, and see if our dream values people. Um, those are the two biggest commandments that Jesus boiled, the, or two biggest things Jesus boiled the commandments down to. It's to love God and to love people. And I have two, so for an example, this, I have two friends who are brothers. Um, one went into college, right, with the dream of becoming a doctor. Um, and the other went into college with the dream of becoming a pastor. And so they both wanted to use their dream in different ways to kind of honor God and do things. The doctor wanted to become a missionary and, you know, um, serve the Lord in that way, going and taking medical supplies and medical needs to people around the world. Um, while the one who went into ministry obviously wanted to be a pastor and help people through that way. Um, but as they both kind of got deeper into college, um, an interesting thing happened. The brother that went to college to become a doctor began to pursue ministry while the brother that pursued ministry began to study medicine. Um, and it's funny because they literally switched roles. The brother who went to be a doctor is now uh, running a college ministry here in Orlando. And the other one who went to be a pastor is now studying to be a doctor and going to medical school. Um, and so it's funny because their dreams switched, but the true desire stayed the same. Right? Their true desire of seeking and honoring God and loving people through that stayed the same. And so you see when our dreams and when our desires are rooted in the ways of God, no matter what it turns out to look like, the dream will still be the same. Does that make sense? Um, 
but I just find that hilarious. Uh, so, <laughs> this will not be the case, though, with the false teacher, because they won't submit to the, we- drill, the will and dreams of God, right? Um, and so, the next section in verse 9 through 11, uh, which says this, it says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. And so this section, right, tells us that false teachers will blaspheme the things that they do not understand, that they rely on their own understanding. Jude gives us some examples by talking about Cain and Balaam. Um, so if you remember the story of Cain, Cain and his brother Abel both brought sacrifices to God as worship, and Abel brought that of his first sheep, and Cain brought some of his crops. But God only accepted the offering of Abel and not of Cain. And so because of a lack of faith, uh, which is what we find out in Hebrews, but Cain, out of frustration and lack of not understanding why God didn't accept his sacrifice, rises up in frustration, and he kills his brother uh, because he's mad that God doesn't accept his offering. And so Balaam, who was a um, non-Israelite, but he was a prophet that was known for when he would bless people, they would do great. And when he would curse people, um, they wouldn't do so great. And so king at the time, Balak, who was the king of the Moabites, sent for Balak, or Balaam to come and curse the nation of Israel um, as they were wandering throughout the wilderness because he was getting scared of their number, their growing number of people. Um, and so at first, Balaam consulted with God, and God said, um, no. Right? And so he listened at first, but eventually Balaam decided to go with the men of Balak. And this is where we get the story of the talking donkey in the Old Testament. Um, and so Balaam never cursed Israel, but he was faithful. Uh, he ne- ended up never cursing Israel. He only did what God told him to say. Um, but you see Balaam's error, which they mention here in Jude, was that he kept trying to change God's mind instead of just accepting what God said. There's multiple times, three times that Balaam... Balaam tries to go and persuade God to let him curse Israel. Um, And so false teachers will lack true faith. That's what Cain and Balaam show, that you do not lack true sustaining faith. False teachers would act or say things like, there's no way God could do that because it doesn't make sense to me. But you see, God's ways are higher than our own. Thank God. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And when we might see a dead end and we might see a wall, he only sees a way. And so we need to be weary of people that live as though God can only do what they perceive as possible. Um, He goes on, and Jude does, in verse 12, to talk about false teachers and say that they're selfish, empty, and fruitless. Um, In verse 12, he says this. He says, "These, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. There are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees, and late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. You see, Jude, 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 oh gosh, Jude says that false teachers are like shepherds that don't care about their flock and only care about feeding themselves. And as we know, the shepherd's job was to take care of the sheep at any cost. We even read about how David once killed a lion and killed a bear, right, just to keep his sheep alive. A good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. That's why we call Jesus the good shepherd. But see, Jude says that, a good, that here the shepherd 
only cares about himself. That's what a false teacher is like. Um, They are people that put their needs, their hopes, their dreams above everybody else's. The false teacher is not concerned with the health of his flock or his church. Jude says that false teachers are like waterless clouds. And this is an agricultural reference. Um, Clouds brought rain, which helped the crops to grow. Um, And so Jude is saying that false teachers, one, they don't feed their flock. That helps them grow. But um, they have no sustenance. They have nothing of real value within them. This is why he goes on to say that they are like trees that don't bear fruit. Under them, nobody is growing. Nobody is having a genuine faith in Jesus. People who are under false teachers will be self-driven and lack faith just like their teachers. Another thing he brings up, and lastly, he talks about how false teachers will bring shame. He talks about this in verse 13, um, where he says, They're like wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering storms for the gloom of utter darkness, has been re- who has, which has been reserved forever. So he says false teachers are people that stir up shame instead, shame, stir up shame um, instead and call it conviction. Does that make sense? They bring shame, but they call it conviction. They make you feel bad for being imperfect, and then they use that shame to forward their own kingdom and to keep you coming back. They make people feel like the grace of God isn't enough. A lot of times you'll see people who follow false teachers fall into a rhythmic of works, um, and they feel like they just can't do enough. They can't do enough to be blessed by God. Um, And it could be easy, honestly, for us to get shame and conviction uh, mixed up. It could be easy for us to get the shame that false teachers bring mixed with the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings. And so how do we tell the difference? Um, You see, conviction leads us to a place of greater dependence on the grace extended by God, while shame drives us further away from God and makes us feel like we need to depend on other things, like works, like tithing, like serving, maybe even reading our Bible and praying. Uh, but here are some differences between shame and conviction that I love that come from a book. Um, it's by Louis Giglio. It's entitled, Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. And he says this. He says, condemnation and shame uh, comes from guilt while conviction is born of grace. Shame leads you to, to concealing your sin while conviction urges you to confess it. Shame causes you to rededicate while conviction leads to full surrender. Shame leads you down a path of future failure, but conviction is a highway to real change. You see, in our life, we have to begin to realize the difference between shame and between conviction. Because one is a false teacher in the enemy, and one is not. But thankfully, Jude makes it pretty clear throughout the whole book that judgment is coming for the false teachers. Um, and he says this in verses 14 through 16. Um, he says, it was also about these, the Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of their, all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed. In such an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You see, I think that Jude includes this part of coming judgment for two reasons. One, I think he writes it as a hope for believers. He's saying, yes, contend for your faith, fight for it, but know that your fighting isn't in vain. Know that there is a day where Jesus will come and rectify all things. 
right, like we sang about, and there is a king. There is a king who is going to come and will wipe every tear away. And so a day is coming where Jesus will come and he will set all things right and everything will be made clear. But until that day, we're to contend for our faith, to fight for what is right in our, and what scripture says. And secondly, I think he includes this section as a reminder that it's not our job to condemn false teachers. Yes, we are to discern, discern and to flee from them, but it is ultimately up to God to condemn them for their ungodliness. This is a part of faith. Part of faith is believing that God will justify, justly deal with everybody. And so knowing all these things, what does Jude want us to do? He wants us to persevere. And so he calls us to that. He calls us to persevere in verses 17 through 23, um, where he says this. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we're continuing to build up others. We're continuing to pray in the Holy Spirit. He's saying that we should continue to stay close to the word and to continue to love God. We are to love those who doubt with mercy and to stay faithful to the call of the Great Commission. We should live as holy examples, refusing the temptation of the flesh. He's saying that this is how we contend. We contend for the faith, uh, and we can expose and refute those who are false teachers by living out the true gospel. That's how we can best expose false teachers, is by following God's word closely. By staying close to God through his word, through prayer, and by showing mercy to people, even those who doubt and don't believe. And so this morning, I hope that I've helped you to see how false teachers can use our own emotions and shame to lead us away from the true gospel. Um, so my prayer this morning is that if you are still struggling with doubt, if, or when you begin to struggle with doubt, keep pushing through. God's made a way for you before. He'll do it again. Go further up and further into what he is and his love for you. If you're struggling with pride, ask God through the Holy Spirit to help make you humble and content with the place he has placed you in your life for now. Trust that God is true to his word and will exalt the humble in his own time and have faith that his timing is perfect. Lastly this morning, if you've been distorting the gospel and bending it to your desires and pleasures, maybe you've become callous to the sting of conviction over a certain sin. Will you repent this morning and ask the Holy Spirit to begin to soften your heart once again to conviction so that the Holy Spirit may direct your steps and lead you into grace? See, the book of Jude ends with a doxology, um, a praise and prayer um, for the people that Jude is writing to, um, but to Jesus. And as we close, before we go into our prayer, I want to just read this over us, um, just as a prayer for us, but to Jesus. Um, and this is what it says in the end of Jude. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to be present and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much 
just for your scripture and for the book of Jude. God, though it's just a short book, Lord, it packs a punch. It challenges us, Lord, to stay close to your word and to avoid false teachers and false doctrine. God, I pray that you just help us to identify false teachers of the gospel within our, within our lives. Help us to turn back to the real gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, help us to pursue the true gospel in times when we are doubting, when we're filled with pride, or we're tempted to follow our own pleasure. Holy Spirit, help us to not be false teachers. Help us to live for God's glory and not our own. God, I pray for those today who might be struggling with doubt, that you, Holy Spirit, would reveal God to them in a new way and remind them of the ways that you've already come through for them. For those who are struggling with pride, God, I pray that you humble us and teach us to be content with all the things you've already given us. And if you choose to exalt us, God, I pray that we give you all the glory. Lord, if we've become callous to our sin, we begin to live a life without true repentance, and I pray you make our hearts soft to the sting of conviction so that the Holy Spirit can direct us and make our path straight. God, you would begin a great work in our church and in our people. Lord, we know you'll be faithful to complete it. May your will just be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.